the wildlife people are going to come out, they're going to trap that black bear, and they're going to kill it. And no one is allowed to do that in Kenya. You cannot do that. (laughs) If you kill an elephant in Kenya, you face years of prison time and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. And, you know, that's important, right? Elephants are endangered. They are important. They really are. But part of the reason that the toll for killing an elephant is so high is because of what Westerners think of them. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. And today, well, today is a lot like most episodes, but also a little bit different because today my guest is someone very close to this podcast, our own very wonderful Bethany Brookshire. In addition to being one of our hosts, she's also a journalist and science writer, having written for outlets such as Science News, The Atlantic, Scientific American, The Washington Post, and other fine publications. And folks, it was always going to happen sooner or later. Our Bethany has written a book. So today, we're turning the tables on Bethany, inviting her into our comfy guest armchair to talk about her new book, Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. Bethany, how's it feel over there? Comfy? Uh terrifying (laughs) is this how we make people feel oh my god (laughs) no i'm absolutely thrilled to be here this is exactly the sort of podcast i want to be on well you are exactly the type of guest we love to have on so it feels like a good match i feel a good interview coming on so As we all know, you've been a science writer for a really long time with a pretty wide range of interests and beats. So what I'm interested to know up front for your first book, what initially made you want to focus on pests? It's actually, it's super nerdy, which is is great because I feel like this is the audience that would appreciate a super nerdy backstory. Um, You know, a lot of people have backstories like, oh, I was, you know, personally attacked by an opossum. Um, I was not. Uh, I was actually reporting a story for Science News Magazine in 2016, and it's a story that I re-reported for the book. It's in the book. Um, And it is about the origins of the house mouse. And basically, they found house mouse teeth, little teeth, um, that are associated with the very, very first dwellings, permanent, semi-permanent dwellings in the Levant. And I was just floored by this. I was absolutely amazed to find out that we have had mice since before we had agriculture because people actually settled down and built semi-permanent housing structures before they started actually farming full-time. And so we've had house mice since we've had houses. And I just loved it. I just fell in love with this idea that these animals have been with us since the very beginning of our settled existence. I just adored it. Um, And since then, I just started finding all of these wonderful examples of these animals that were living with us and living around us and living off of us. Um, And the more I saw it, the more I became amazed, not just by the animals, but by the way people react to them. Because what really fascinates me about pests is not the pests themselves, though they are great and fabulous and I love them. It's the way people respond and how we hate the animals that succeed around us. It just 
boggles my mind. And so I started to realize that maybe this needed to be a book. So in the book, you make a point and you actually talk about it a little bit of not covering insects, even though a lot of us often use the term pest for creatures like ants, wasps, spiders, cockroaches, or just a couple that come to mind. So why focus on vertebrates only? Well, interestingly, the word pest, if you really want to go back to the very origins in um, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, actually comes from diseases, pest as in pestilence. Uh, it's like a derived from Norman French. Let's not even go there. Anyway, um, I could have done invertebrates. Uh, but first of all, those books already exist. I highly recommend them. <laughs> go read them. They're good. Um, but also, I wanted to focus on vertebrates because of what I mentioned earlier, that I'm interested in the way people respond. And the reality is that in Western culture, the way we respond to insects, there's not a lot of, <laughs> there's, there's not a lot of like conscious thought, you know, you smush it with a shoe and you feel kind of good about yourself, you know? Um, whereas with vertebrates in particular, um, we actually feel this strange hypocrisy, right? We love these animals in some contexts and we hate them in others. And that hypocrisy was kind of what I wanted to highlight, um, kind of the way that humans react in this kind of complex and often contradictory sort of way. <laughs> Right. So invertebrates are sort of always alien outsiders, whereas vertebrates can be alien outsiders or they can be invited insiders, sometimes quite literally invited into our homes in some cases. Right. I mean, there are very few people in this world who keep pet roaches. There are people, but there are very few of them. <laughs> whereas there are lots of people who keep pet house cats, pet rats, there are people who keep pigeons. Um, you know, these animals, it's all about context and our beliefs. And that was what really fascinated me. It's definitely something about this book and about all the science books that I really enjoy reading um, is all of the context and all of the complexity that gets put back into something that for a lot of us in our daily life, we think of as being quite simple. When most of us use the term pest or label a creature as a pest, we're doing so to sort of simplify the situation, right? We're saying that mouse, that rat, that pigeon is a pest. We need to get rid of it. There is a singular focus, which is remove it by whatever means necessary. But actually, digging into pests, it's so much more complicated than that, as oftentimes things that have easy labels are. Yeah. And that, that was kind of what I really liked focusing on in this book, is that the animals that we call pests, we when we use the word pest, a whole bunch of things are coming together in that word. And we never step back and look at why we are saying we hate this animal, right? And so it's really fascinating to step back and say, okay, well, here's the kind of proximal reason I hate this animal. <laughs> um, in my case, I hate the squirrel. Um, we we name him, uh, his name is fucking Kevin. Uh, we call him Kevin for short. Um, and I hate him because he eats all of my tomatoes. And that's the proximal reason that I hate him, but it's not the ultimate reason that I hate him. And so if you actually kind of peel back the layers and say, well, 
why do I hate that the squirrel eats my tomatoes? What does it say about me that I hate this squirrel? You start to realize that the squirrel is not, I mean, it's just a squirrel, right? He's just, he's just eating. Like that's just a thing that he does. What, what I'm doing is I'm projecting my desire to control my environment, my desire to treat my garden as mine and a place that other animals should just kind of know is sacred <laughs> and projecting it onto, you know, this small animal with a fluffy tail. And that's just really amazing to me to realize most people just kind of see the proximal reason and they never actually look underneath to see why it is they hate what they hate. I think your story about Kevin was such a great way to open the book and also to really highlight before you dig into and kind of point at that highlighting, what makes a pest? Because it's not just Kevin eating your tomato uh, or tomatoes. It's it's also that no matter what you did, no matter how many different strategies you tried, you couldn't stop Kevin from doing so. Kevin kept eating your tomatoes. There was no way you found to prevent him from doing so. That, I think, is uh, such a canny way to introduce us to the conflict that centers at the book in a way that would allow you to kind of point back to it later. I found that a really interesting introductory story for the book. And then I kept mentally going back to it um, as I was reading through and thinking more through the complexities of the interactions that we have with these animals to just sort of think back to that, to, to the story about Kevin. I'm so glad. Yeah. Um, I mean, I keep going back to the story about Kevin too, in part because he's still around. <laughs> that little jerk. I saw him just yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> He's still here. I grew delicata squash for the first time this year. And guess who ate my first delicata squash? Oh, it was Kevin. It was definitely Kevin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I kind of, I hope you enjoyed it. That's all. That's all I'm going to say. So we usually use the term pest as a noun. We've used it a lot as a noun in this conversation already. Um, and, uh, you know, Kevin, a pest. My cat, uh, is a pest every day around 4 p.m. when he's expecting my partner to get home from work. A, a pest is a creature. But your book highlights that actually pest is not just a creature. A pest like a friend is not about one thing. It's about a relationship. It's not an inherent aspect of something. It's actually two behaviors intertwined in a particular kind of frustrating conflict. Yeah, yeah. It's very much about human wildlife conflict. And that's actually a term that, believe it or not, a lot of uh, wildlife experts, conservation experts, they really don't like the term human wildlife conflict oh, um, because it implies fights. And the reality is that human wildlife conflict implies a fight that we are starting. No animal is consciously trying to start a fight with humans, right? They don't want to do that. Um, so there, there's actually a big move toward human-wildlife coexistence um, as a term instead of human-wildlife conflict. Um, because And human-wildlife conflict has actually replaced things like pest in the literature, in the scientific literature, because pest was considered too confrontational. And so then they made it human-wildlife conflict, and then that was too confrontational. <laughs> so now we're at human-wildlife interactions or human-wildlife coexistence um, to try and emphasize that these relationships do not have to be negative. They're negative because we decided they are. 
not because they actually are. So I think we need to unpack that statement of a pest. These these relationships are considered to be negative and they are because we have deemed them so or we have made them so in some cases. So I'm not quite sure the best way to start this, but I think unpacking that whole idea of humans are really the initiator here or the owner of these relationships in ways that we are not entirely aware of on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that's something I think about a lot is very much the the concept of pest, the concept of human wildlife conflict is very wrapped in the idea of how humans perceive their relationships with their environments. It's not just the relationship with the animal in question. It's not just me and Kevin. The relationship between me and Kevin, the squirrel who eats all of my tomatoes, and to be clear, there are like seven Kevins. They're just all named Kevin. Um, (laughs) I I know there are at least two or three because I've seen several at a time. (laughs) Um, But, um, you know, I think of them like the Batman, like they all don the mask at different times. Right. Yep. Um, Anyway, um, so the relationship between me and Kevin is not just about me and Kevin. It is about me and the relationship I have with my yard the relationship I have with what I have decided is my property, right? What that means. It means that I own the things that are on it. I own the tomatoes that are on it. Um, And that means that when Kevin eats that tomato, he is eating something that I own. I am bothered because I have decided that this area is full of things that I own and that he is impinging on those things. And I think it's really hard for people to remember that, right? Like we have these human ideas of property and these human ideas of ownership. And we just kind of assume that everyone knows about this and the humans do, (laughs) but the animals can't read. (laughs) And they have never seen, you know, your title to your land. Um, And they do not care that that tomato was planted by you. Um, And so I think it's really fascinating to kind of see what the word pest says about what we think about our environments and how we think that we own these places. We think we own them. We think we control them. And when animals kind of give us the finger and say, actually, I'm here and I'm going to eat your tomato. We not only feel annoyed because we planted that tomato and we like it, but also we feel vulnerable, right? We feel silly. Um, We feel like we've been taken advantage of. But all of these things are wrapped up in the idea of how we feel the environment should behave with respect to us, right? It's something that I pursue in the book um, with what is called the dominion-associated mindset. Um, And it should be noted that this mindset is not universal. Not every human thinks that they should own the property that they live in. (laughs) Um, It's, in fact, super Western and very Christian in mindset. Um, But it's so foundational to the way that we interact with wildlife that we just don't even think about it. It never even comes to mind um, until we actually start digging into these definitions. What is a pest and why are we bothered? 
One of the things I enjoyed seeing highlighted in the book was the concept of our homes and our cities, our human spaces, we see as being apart from nature rather than a part of nature. We see them as being separate. But you quite rightly in the book talk about the spaces that are human created are still themselves ecosystems. They are not separate from or different from in in that they're they are vastly different. We create places that become ecosystems. So, and that for us is, is frustrating because part of what we're trying to do is to get rid of the ecosystem. Um, and our, our attempt to live separate from nature, these creatures we mark out as pests kind of highlight to us the illusion of that, of that attempt really, or of that, that feeling of control of dominating nature it's it's not really possible right it's you know it's something that i see in a lot of aspects of life when people feel anxious um they try to establish control they try to create their space where nothing else can enter right and pests challenge that sense of control right that coyote eats your livestock or something like that, that challenges your sense of control, and it makes you feel afraid. It punctures the sense of safety that you had, because you assumed that nothing else should get in there. Um, and there's this idea, and I think some some historians think it stems from the Industrial Revolution, um, because that was the point at which we started, we as in Western societies, started being able to create buildings and cities and stuff that could actually keep animals out. Prior to that, you couldn't. Um, every barn had mice and rats in it. Everyone did. <laughs> you could not keep the animals out of it. Every house had mice in it. This was an established fact. Um, and it was only after the Industrial Revolution that we became able to create these kind of what pest control refers to as the solid home envelope. Um, oh, wow. That actually, <laughs> what a term. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> the envelope um, is the most important thing in pest control is protecting the envelope of the home. Um, and it was only after the Industrial Revolution that we became capable of kind of pulling off that separation. Um, and it had so many wild knock-on effects <laughs> pulling off that separation. I mean, not only did it make people feel that the animals that used to get in did not belong it made those animals worse in our eyes. It made them disgusting. Um, it made them invasive. It made them threatening. Um, but it also changed the way that we viewed nature outside, right? The Industrial Revolution kind of helped promote the idea of romanticism in the environment, the idea that Wilderness is beautiful and beyond human reach. And when you think that wilderness and nature are beautiful and are essentially separate from humans, when you find nature not separate from humans, is that nature? Mm -hmm. it's, it's very easy to quickly say, well, no, no, it isn't. That's evil. That's bad. Sort of the changing definition of what we see as nature. And also, it sounds like a little bit of our own success. We did manage to actually fence nature off in some small ways successfully. And perhaps 
that emboldened us in a way that we hadn't been before as maybe we can do this properly. Maybe we can cut ourselves off because look, we did it right there. We successfully kept the mice out of the grain. So I also want to talk about other types of complexities that you cover in the book really well. Um, and a lot of the animals you deep dive are not simple cases of pests. I think for most of us, there are simple cases that are quite straightforward to point to, though we'll add some complexity to some of those potentially as well. Creatures like rats and pigeons, for example, the vast majority of us would probably point to those creatures in most cases and say, thou art a pest. Um, but you cover a lot of cases and animals in your book that don't fall even that simply. And that simplicity is an illusion anyway, but even the illusion of simplicity, you lift quite fast. Um, can you give us um, what I'd really love to hear you talk about is uh, the elephants that you uh, in Kenya, because that one, I think, was a really great example for people who grew up in westernized culture of how this issue can be so deeply complex in a way that we really need to own that we're not. Yeah, yeah, that was um, a really fascinating example for me as well. Uh so just to kind of background this a little bit, the book itself is kind of organized around themes. Um, and the theme underlying the chapter that elephants occur in is the theme of belief and kind of what it is that we, how, how we categorize animals based on what we believe, right? And we in the global north, the west, um, have these very romanticized views of elephants, you know, they're beautiful, they're wise, they're peaceful, and they are indeed all of those things. They are gorgeous. <laughs> I have now seen them up close um, and not just in a zoo. I have, you know, been to Kenya and I have seen them and they are so gorgeous, like just amazing. Um, but they're also animals. They are giant sentient tanks and when they interact with humans, that can be very dangerous. Um, and I think we often don't think about that because we only see them in, you know, beautiful books or beautiful documentaries, um, you know, or pretty magazine features. Um, and we don't realize that, for example, in Africa, the continent, um, African elephants kill about 200 people a year. Um, they cause millions of dollars in crop damages. It is a way bigger problem, actually, in Asia with the Asian elephant. Um, there, I think the death toll is around six or seven hundred a year. Um, and again, millions of dollars in crop damages. And this is because, you know, we don't, we often forget that animals don't live off in the wild with nobody watching them, right? In, you know, in Kenya, for example, Elephants have pretty much always lived around people. And for a long time, those people were herders. They were um, groups. Uh, there are several groups uh, that live around elephants in Kenya, but the one that I end up highlighting is the Maasai. Um, and they have been herders living around elephants for a very long time. And for a very long time, there was very good coexistence during that. Um, you know, they didn't 
really have too many conflicts um, with elephants. And elephants actually play a huge role um, in their culture, in their traditional culture, in their traditional religions. It should be noted that not all Maasai practice traditional religions. There's a very strong Christian component now. Um, anyway, <laughs> they, you know, elephants have, play this important cultural role. But now, after the British colonization of Kenya, Kenya's subsequent independence, and the creation of national reserves and national parks, there has been a creation of human-elephant conflict. Um, and this is partially because of the advent of things like agriculture, right? Like if you are an elephant and you are wandering around eating your elephant things and you realize that right next to the national park where you live, there is a giant field of corn, <laughs> you are going to be like, that looks delicious and you're going to go eat it. And you're not going to eat a little because you are not little. You are an elephant <laughs> and you're not going to eat it delicately because you're not little. You're an elephant. <laughs> And when people come out and try to defend their crops from these elephants, they get hurt and they get killed. And it can be really bad. Um, and what's really what really ended up kind of fascinating me, and I say that in a not positive way, I say that in a violently interesting, often negative kind of way about human elephant conflict, is how much the prevention of this conflict is based on what Westerners think about elephants. So like, because we think elephants are beautiful and peaceful and endangered, and they are, they 100% are, they're endangered. And so the way that people who live with human elephant conflict have to deal with that conflict takes a very different tone than the way that we would deal with that conflict if the animal was close to us. Um, and the example I use in the book is wolves, but another really good example is actually black bears. Um, because as we are recording this, it is fall and the black bears are fattening up because they are real hungry and they need to go to bed. Okay, and so the black bears have massive voracious appetites. And so right now my email inbox is filling with people saying, black bear spotted in this town, black bear breaks into somebody's house and eats all the food in their fridge. This happens all the time. And when it does, that black bear dies every single time. The wildlife people are going to come out, they're going to trap that black bear, and they're going to kill it. And no one is allowed to do that in Kenya. You cannot do that. <laughs> if you kill an elephant in Kenya, you face years of prison time and hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. And you know, that's important, right? Elephants are endangered. They are important. They really are. But part of the reason that the toll for killing an elephant is so high is because of what Westerners think of them. And because of what they think the people in Kenya should have to deal with. When a black bear breaks into a human's house in North America, that is something that no human should have to deal with right? That is something where it is justified that the animal should die. When an elephant breaks into a human's house in Kenya, that is different. That is something that the human should have to deal with because the elephant is more important than the person. And it is very established in Kenya that that is actually the case, that when a person kills an elephant in Kenya, it's you know years and years in jail. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines. When an elephant kills a person, 
you can get restitution. It takes years and years and piles of paperwork and crazy amounts of evidence. And I believe the ratio, I want to say that elephants monetarily are worth about 10 to 20 times more than a human life in Kenya, monetarily speaking. The amount of money that you get when a family member dies is 10 to 20 times less than what you would have to pay if an elephant died. And that's because of the way we think, we in the West think about elephants and think about the animal's value. And it was just so fascinating to see that play out. You know, because of course, Kenya is its own independent country right now. They can make their own rules, but they don't really make their own rules because so much of their gross income as a country is from tourism, from tourism from the West, from people who pay to see elephants. And so they have this really important monetary interest in preserving these animals and in conserving them and dealing with their conflict in ways that are non-lethal. This has both positive and negative repercussions, right? The negative repercussions are that people do die. The positive repercussions are that they have really impressive ways of driving off elephants. So for example, they use things like beehive fences, which are literally fences made of beehives, um, because African bees are no joke. They are mean, mean bees. Um, And the bees, elephants do not like bees (laughs) for obvious reasons. And so when the bees are surrounding the crops, the elephants will be like, you know, maybe I'll go try something else. Um, They will try stinky elephant repellents made of all sorts of gross fermented stuff. (laughs) Um, And the elephants will be like, oh, that's gross. I'll go find something else. Um, They will throw chili pepper at elephants (laughs) because elephants don't like spicy food. Um, They'll drive them off with torches. They'll drive them off with ATVs. They'll drive them off with Jeeps. They'll um, drive them off with drones, um, with helicopters. They will do almost anything to not kill that animal. And that's a really good way to deal with human-wildlife conflict in terms of the life of the animal involved. It's also really expensive. It's also really difficult. Um, But it just shows the different ways that people can approach animals that they consider pests. And in some countries in Africa, and that's not just Kenya, um, in other countries like Botswana, um, people refer to elephants as the government's cattle um, because they are owned technically by the government. Um, And they do think of them as pests because of the problem that they cause. But the way they deal with those problems is very different from the way that Western people deal with animals that we don't like. And the reason it's different is because of the influence that the West has had and the beliefs that Westerners have about the animals that Africans are living with. I think the comparison to bears is such a canny one. You talk in the book at uh, length about uh, bears in the US. And I found it particularly fascinating. Um, one of the studies you talked about where uh, a group of people in a place where they were having a lot of bear human encounters, where some researchers actually spent a bunch of time and effort and money into trying to, um, quote unquote, bear proof uh, a section of of 
of the city, I don't remember if it was a city or town where people lived in, um, provided them with uh, bear-proof trash cans and lots of education and that kind of stuff. And um, to try and reduce the number of uh, collisions between people and bears to basically do what we ask people uh, in Kenya to do with elephants, which is don't kill them, change your behavior and so that they aren't they aren't coming into our space. Um, and I found the results of that research to be perhaps not actually that surprising, but really elucidating in this discussion. And I think a great contrast to what happened with the elephant. So can you talk us through that research a little bit? Yeah. So the the city is Durango, Colorado. Um, and I apologize in advance to the people of the fine city of Durango. It's not you. <laughs> Well, I mean, it is you, but it's not you personally. Um, so yeah, it was a really fascinating series of studies um, by Heather Johnson and Stacey Lishka. Um, they basically managed to cordon off areas of the city, not physically, but um, they sectioned off areas of the city into kind of areas where they worked really hard to make people bear aware and areas where they didn't. And in the areas where they had people be very bear aware, they gave out bear-resistant trash cans. I cannot say bear-proof trash cans because there is no such thing as a bear-proof trash can. <laughs> um, there is only a bear-resistant trash can. Um, but they gave out um, these big trash cans with locking lids. Um, they're actually really expensive. They're well north of $250 a piece. Um, and they educated people on like, you know, locking up their trash, taking down their bird feeders, you know, keeping all like pet food inside, anything that could attract a bear. Um, and they also did enforcement. So they had people drive around and check the trash cans and say, okay, if you don't lock your trash can, you get a big sticker on your door and on your trash can saying, hey, you didn't lock your trash can to try and encourage people to be more bear aware. And I will say they did get pretty good compliance. It was actually quite good. In some areas, people really did lock their trash cans. Um, they took down their bird feeders. And in those areas where they did, they actually saw a major decrease in the number of bears getting into the trash. But <laughs> a lot of people didn't. <laughs> like, you can lead a person to a bear-proof trash can, but you cannot make them lock it. <laughs> like, people would overfill the trash can. They would find out they had too much trash for the trash can, and they'd put a big bag of trash just right next to it. <laughs> um, they would leave their bird feeders up. They would leave the trash can open. Um, you know, as many ways as you can think of to screw this up, people did it. And... It's not that people are bad people and it's not that they want bears coming around eating. <laughs> they don't. Um, it's that it's hard to do this permanent change to your behavior. It's really hard to remember, you know, when it's freezing and the trash needs to go out to remember to lock the can. And then you have too much trash. And where do you put the extra trash? Oh, no. Are you going to put it like in your garage for a week? That's annoying. You know, there's all of these little things that come into play with human behavior. And it takes not just a drive to not have human bear conflict, right? So one of the other things that Stacey Lishka in particular has studied is what it takes to really make people want to comply, want to use the bear-proof trash cans, want to take down their bird feeders, want to bring in their pet food. And the thing that really makes them comply is not a desire to not have conflict. It is actually 
acknowledgement of the positive sides of having bears around. So people were more likely to comply if they liked bears. If they're like, actually, I really enjoy that I live here in Colorado, where it's beautiful bear country, and you will see bears out when you're hiking, and that's beautiful and special. And I care about these animals. And because I care about these animals, I will lock my trash. And, you know, that's what it takes. It doesn't just take the negative, the desire to get rid of the pest. It takes the positive, the desire to see this animal as something that isn't a pest, as something that you value. And I think that's the real challenge when dealing with animals that we call pests. It's not just getting rid of them. It's seeing that actually there are upsides to these animals too. It's definitely a thing that we struggle with. A pest is such an easy shorthand to be dismissive about something. Um, And I mean, we even dismiss people as pests. Who among us hasn't labeled an annoying coworker or uh, an annoying school person uh, a pest of a person? And it's it's it really is a, a label and a PR move on our point on our part uh, to categorize something as not worthy of consideration. And to that point, it feels like wanting the bears to thrive means that you're more willing to consider them because you don't want the results to be their death. And an awareness of if the bears keep coming around and and causing danger to people because I'm leaving my trash out on the side of the road and not using this $250 garbage can properly, then I'm endangering the bear as much as the bear being there is potentially endangering the people. Right. And that's something that I've found people really do not, they they have a tough time with that, Um, especially with bears. I've had numerous interactions where someone will post a video and they'll say, oh, look at this beautiful bear. It's in my yard. It's eating my bird feeder in the middle of the day. And I... I'm not really good at this, but I go in there and I'm like, that's really cute. Please take down your bird feeder, please, please, please. (laughs) And they'll be like, no, no, it's fine. We know the risks. We take the bird feeder in at night. And I'm like, no, no, you have to understand the bear is eating your bird feeder during the day. That is a change in behavior. And that means that that bear has figured out that your bird feeder is there and it's full and that's great. And it's going to keep coming back. And it's going to keep getting closer. It's going to eat the dog food that's on your porch. And then it's going to eat the food that's in your garage. And then it's going to eat the food that's in your fridge in your house. And when it does that, it is going to die. And like, people really don't want to think that and they get really offended. And I need to find better ways to like, convey this to people that doesn't sound accusatory. And I'm really bad at it. Um, But people don't want to think that. They want to kind of have this Disney moment of this beautiful wild animal. And that's a really tough thing for a lot of people in Western cultures in particular, is it's very hard for us to see a wild animal and leave it alone. And it's really fascinating because, you know, for this book, I spent a lot of time um, looking at other cultures and other ways of coexisting with animals. And one of the things that kind of came out to me um, was that people recognized these animals as beings in their own right and as beings with kind of a right to privacy. 
right? Interesting. Like you see the animal in the woods and you leave it alone. You do not try to have a Disney princess moment. <laughs> you leave it alone and you acknowledge that the joy of having it around and the beauty of living in the ecosystem with it is the positive thing that makes you take down your bird feeder, have, you know, bear bins in your yard for your trash. You know, that coexistence is the positive and that coexistence is worth it. And that coexistence does not involve you feeding it out of your hand or petting it. I find it interesting that most pe- like people's reactions to animals tend to fall I mean there's not a lot of options but they they fall in sort of one of two categories if we see the animal as if, and by we I mean like an individual person because people will vary on this um if you see the animal as dangerous either because it's considered disgusting a carrier of disease or because it's bigger than you more powerful than you teeth claws that kind of thing if it's seen as dangerous you want more distance if for whatever reason you see it as not dangerous, you want less distance. You want it to get closer. You want to have an encounter. You want to scratch its ear. You want to try and have that, like you say, the Disney princess moment. Um, and I found uh, for me, I spent a couple of summers living and working in um, the middle of nowhere in the Rocky Mountains in uh, not just bear country, but cougar country, wolf country, a lot of stuff there. And after a couple of um not super close encounters, but encounters where I realized I was on their turf, I very quickly um, shifted from being a person who maybe would have tried to get a little closer to a person who at most, depending on how close they were, I would maybe stand and watch if the distance felt reasonable or I would immediately back up. (laughs) Smart. Very smart. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the, that's the thing. It's all about our perceptions and our perceptions are also the result of our culture, right? You know, we were talking about elephants. We see elephants as these beautiful, peaceful animals, because that is how we have always encountered them, which is to say we have never encountered them Um, (laughs) or you've encountered them at best in a zoo. Um, You know, uh, so for example, when I was in Kenya, um, doing reporting, I actually got bluff charged by an elephant. Um, I was in a Range Rover. So, you know, um, I was in a Range Rover and it was actually a really young elephant. It was like a teen elephant, I would say. And it was quite clear that this elephant was like trying it on, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like I'm big, I'm bad. I'm going to scare these humans. Um, You know, but, you know, he had his ears flared out and he was like kind of making noise and he, you know, ran toward us. And you know, he veered off. He had no interest in actually charging us. But it made it very clear that if he'd wanted, he was only a teen elephant, he could have rolled that Range Rover over in a second. Right. It would not have been an effort for him. And that just kills any Disney princess moment you want to have. You will never know Disney princess moments. Mm-mm. Um. So yeah, I think it's very much about how we've perceived these animals. And I think that's partially on our cultural education, right? We do not, we are not raised to treat bears with respect. We are raised with teddy bears. Mm. We are not raised to treat wolves with respect. We are raised to see them as things we have a right to view when we go to Yellowstone, mm-hmm. right? Um, we're raised to see these animals as kind of this 
wilderness that has been tamed and neutered for our pleasure. And it is not. It never has been and it never will be. And I think one of the keys to coexistence is to realize that and to respect it, to respect that these animals have their own agency and they want their space. (laughs) I think uh, another great animal example that will bring some of the complexities home to a lot of people is uh, an example of an animal who we quite literally often have in our own homes. I know you've got at least one. I think you've got two. And I've got one in my house right now, and that's cats. And I really enjoyed this chapter because talking about cats is such a great way of exploring this topic because so many of us have such positive encounters with cats, but I think a lot of us have also had really negative encounters with cats. So it's easy to kind of slip in and out of both sides of this particular possible pest in a way that with a lot of other creatures, snakes, mice, rats, even bears and elephants is a lot harder to do. Yeah, so I do I do have two cats. Um they own me. Um I love cats. I adore them. Um but yeah, cats are tough. And actually when I was uh when I was writing this book, I through each chapter, I would sit there and be like, "Oh my goodness, which of these chapters is going to make people hate me the most? Is it going to be elephants? Is it going to be cats?" <laughs> Oh, it's definitely going to be cats. It's going to be cats. It's going to be cats. I'm sorry. And I feel like I feel like <laughs> that you lent into that in this chapter in the book as well, because you um you I feel like you leaned into it because in no other place do you so frequently refer to the animal as a killer as you do in the cat chapter, which I loved. It's true. Yeah. The the thing is, we love cats, and we have loved cats. Well, loved. We we have enjoyed cats throughout history because they are killers. That's why we like them. <laughs> they, yeah, I mean, before you know, it, they were pets, they were workers for us, basically. Pest control. And in many areas, they still are. I mean, in many um, suburban and urban areas now, um, we have stray cats as um, they call them barn cats or blue collar cats. Um, you know, we have them employed. <laughs> um, there's a, what? What is a dairy without a cat? You got to have at least one. Usually you have 10. Hey, the um, ranch I worked at, the barn always had a barn cat gotta have a cat Um, because cats are such good killers and where they don't kill. So for example, like we think that cats fight rats, but they don't really like sometimes they do, but most of the time cats and rats just kind of avoid each other. I think of it like if a human was to try and take on a German shepherd, the odds are you would win that fight, but you would not get away unscathed. (laughs) Probably not worth your time. It is not worth your time. And a rat size wise is about the same to a cat. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Not worth the time. But because the cats are around, the rats will avoid the area. So it works. Right. They're deterrents. And, you know, this is great. It's really useful for us. But at the same time, we have brought these cats everywhere around the world with us. Everywhere. And when we bring them places, cats are hunters and they will hunt. And they love live prey. They love things that move. And that means that any small animal that has never seen a cat before is soon going to be an ex small animal <laughs> that has seen a cat once, <laughs> you know, and it's sad and it's tragic. Um, and it really divides people. You know, there are 
um, people like uh, one of the scientists I interviewed, Pete Mara, who is virulently anti-outdoor cat. <laughs> he hates cats. He doesn't hate cats. He will tell you he does not hate cats, but he is very anti-outdoor cat um, because cats kill so much native wildlife. And that's even if they're fed, even if they're fed, they hunt for fun times. Um, and so there are a lot of people who think the cats should never, ever, ever be allowed outdoors. But there are also people who are like, well, it's a cat's job to hunt. This is what their behavior is. How can I possibly ethically own an animal and not let it do its natural thing? There's that idea of ownership again, right? <laughs> right. Um and so it it becomes a really polarized issue, especially because we do see these animals so often, we have so many positive associations with them. And then you have these cats who live on islands, um, who live in places like New Zealand. Um, and in an effort to save the natural wildlife of New Zealand, people kill cats en masse. And people really don't like to think about that. I don't like to think about it. I did think about it a lot. <laughs> I didn't like it. Um, yeah, and it it's just really highlights how our beliefs affect what we're willing to do, right? Um, so, for example, um, it's very big in the United States. Um, it's called trap, neuter, return, TNR. Mm -hmm. um, and you take the cat, you neuter it <laughs> or spay, um, and then you release it again where you found it, and the cat lives out its natural days um, without producing more cats. And some people love this. It's very easy to love this because it is not lethal, because the cat gets to live its cat life outside. Um, but the people who are really concerned about biodiversity really hate it. Because there's not a lot of evidence that it actually reduces cat populations, unfortunately. Um, it does. It does. Over about like 10 to 20 years, <laughs> and you have to TNR every single cat, at least more than 70% of the cats. So it, it's a very big effort over a very long period of time. And during that period of time, some of those cats are still going to be hunting and they're still going to be eating those native fauna. Um, and so you end up very polarized um, about whether or not people should TNR, um, whether they should try to trap and then adopt out the cats. Some of the cats are pretty unadoptable. Right. Like one of the cats that lives with me um, until a major surgery that actually removed most of her teeth, she was unadoptable. She was incredibly antisocial. She wanted nothing to do with humans. It turned out to be a result of severe tooth pain. And when we got rid of the pain, she's an incredibly affectionate little butterball. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, before that, she was very like to all intents and purposes, she was feral. Mm -hmm. And you can't stop that cat from hiding. You can't stop it from hunting. So what do you do? You know, and, and it's a question that I myself cannot answer. I don't think there's a single, single silver bullet answer. I think in some areas, TNR may work. So for example, in the United States, a lot of times where there are colonies of cats, they're not really eating a lot of native wildlife. Like they're eating sparrows, which are also not native <laughs> and pigeons which are also not native so it's it's probably okay um but in other areas where you have these animals on islands where they can actually cause extirpation they can cause extinction it, it's you can't really get out of that problem 
without killing cats. And that's, it's such a weird, uncomfortable thing to think about, you know, because killing cats is part of a dominion associated mindset, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? But also we brought them to the islands because of the dominion associated mindset. <laughs> You know, yeah. it leaves you in this very strange ethical quandary that I do not have answers for because I am not an ethicist. And what's great about the cat example is um, particular species of rats can cause similar kinds of problems on islands, and we wouldn't hesitate to kill the rats. If we could oh, find yeah. a way to kill the rats without damaging the rest of the ecosystem in terms of just getting rid of them, we absolutely would. No questions asked. Let's go in there, kill all them rats. But as soon as you or the turn mice, the rats, there's or actually the talk of like giant cannibal mice on islands. They'll use language like that in the media. Oh, these are evil, giant, cannibalistic, predatory mice. Right. But as soon as it's a creature like a cat that has such a place of affection in the Western cultural mindset, the concept of going in and wholesale killing them suddenly becomes extremely uncomfortable for most people in most situations. Yeah. And it's really fascinating because people would rather judge the humans. Um, so for example, there's um, an indigenous group in Australia that actually specializes in hunting uh, feral cats. Mm -hmm. They're really good at it. And um, they have in the past, people have used this as examples of why they are not why they are, you know, quote unquote, barbaric, mm. you know, or less than. Right. Um, because people value cats so much when the reality is they're specializing in killing an invasive species on their land, which is something that if you saw an invasive species on your land, you would not hesitate to do. It's it's just really fascinating to see how the beliefs about these animals change both how we view the people who try to stop their harms and also how we view their harms. No one wants to believe that their cat is a killer. No one wants to believe that the little stray cat they see kills things, right? It absolutely does. And like, and some of them are not good at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the ones that are good at it can be real good at it. Um, and and it's really fascinating how much we don't want to see it, how much we just pretend it doesn't exist, even though we're getting little dead presents. Yeah, and I think the situation house. of our own pets doing it as well is interesting because even when we're presented with the irrefutable evidence and a very obvious solution, which is your outdoor cat is regularly killing uh, some kind of bird, maybe you also really like having around. Uh, a great solution to that is to keep your cat inside. But there are many people who went, who just won't even do that because they're so conflicted about what is right or wrong or ethical or not ethical in that situation. So there's a sort of default to inaction there, which I think is such a fascinating highlight on this whole topic. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, I do get it. Like there are some outdoor cats where if you try to confine that cat indoors, that cat is going to destroy your home. Right. <laughs> I do get it. I mean, and there are other methods. So for example, there are these giant fluffy collars. They kind of look like scrunchies. Do you remember scrunchies? 
I do. I'm now I'm imagining this. a cat wearing a scrunchie and it's, it's great. It's basically a cat wearing a giant fluffy scrunchie or like a big clown collar in multicolors. Those actually work really well to keep birds away from cats. I bet you the cats love those. Oh, yeah. And bonus point, the cat looks real dumb. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> thinks that's great. Um, I mean, except the cat. Um, other things, you can put a bell on the cat. Um, though, I, it's amazing to me. I One of my cats wears a bell. Um, and she can move without jingling. I still don't know how she does it. <laughs> but she can. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah. So, I mean, there are multiple ways to try and deal with this. You can just keep the cat in at night as opposed to during the day. Um, you know, you can put a collar on the cat. Uh, you can feed the cat a meatier diet. You can play with the cat. Uh, one of our cats is the former feral um, and she gets playtime every single evening. You know, I work out with her just like I work out myself. Right. Except with her, it's a bunch of little stuffed sushis on a string. Right. Um, and she thinks it's great. <laughs> and, you know, that helps kind of deal with her prey drive. And so these are all things that people can do, but I think a lot of people don't know that they can. Um, and also a lot of people really like cats because they're low maintenance. So like <laughs> higher maintenance is kind of annoying. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a difficult line to walk, right? Um, between, you know, you want people to try and, and not have their cats kill things, but also you don't want to make them feel ashamed, um, or make them feel attacked because I mean, when I feel ashamed or attacked, the first thing I do is defend myself right, and let the cat out. life is complicated. <laughs> especially so complicated. especially when we're thinking about our own behavior. Um I I we're starting to run close to time, but I do also want to talk about our attitudes towards creatures we count as pests now through time because some creatures who are now considered to be almost universally pests were definitely not always thought that way. Um and the example I think I love to hear you talk about a bit is pigeons, because that one is, I think, such a, a great example, because most people refer to pigeons as basically rats with wings, right? That's certainly in Western culture, not sure about elsewhere in the world, but that's a, a pretty common way to refer to pigeons. Yeah, and it's rude. <laughs> it's rude to both the pigeons and also to the rats. Um, I was so, going to say, who who's it rude to? It feels like it's, it's rude, rude to both, to but you said it already. It's rude to um, all. <laughs> I, I, should, I should take a moment to plug the fact that um, there's a wonderful book that covers a lot of this in more detail. Courtney Humphrey's Superdove mm -hmm. um, is an entire book about pigeons, and it's really, really good. Um, highly recommend. Um, so yeah, I think people often see pigeons in particular around us and they just assume that pigeons are like rats that they are animals that moved in and followed us around and became pests that are living off of us that these are parasites on human structures and when you think about that for a hot second the pigeons who live in new york did not fly from europe to new york Right. Like they didn't, they don't do that. They had to get on a boat. And if you're a bird, somebody had to bring you onto the boat. Right. Um, and so pigeons arrived 
in America and also, you know, in Australia and New Zealand and it's all around the world because people brought them there. Because people used to value pigeons. Pigeons are one of the oldest domesticated birds. Um, they were domesticated, I want to say six to 8,000 years ago. Um, so no one's quite sure. Um, but they were spectacular. Like in, in early history, pigeons are jackpot. Okay. They go out, they feed themselves. They come back to the same spot every single night, which can be your house or your dovecote, and they make more pigeons. Like, so easy. And what do you get out of this? You get the pigeon guano, which is spectacular fertilizer, and you get delicious pigeon. Like, this is jackpot, okay? Why are we not still eating this? <laughs> it's so good. Um, I have to say, I have actually eaten pigeon in part for this book, and it's delicious. I have also eaten pigeon. It can it's, be. It, I've had very delicious pigeon. It's real good. Mm-hmm. Um, so... People domesticated pigeons and used them. And, and that's not the only thing they used them for. Pigeons were messengers. Um, there are famous, famous pigeons um, from World War I, for example, um, that served as messengers. Um, people race them. There's still actually a million-dollar pigeon race in South Africa that is run, I think, yearly. Um, people show them. There are like these fancy bred pigeons that look absolutely hysterical. Um, like there's some that have, the, they're like powder pigeons and they have these big poofy feather collars. Um, and then there's others that are called tumblers because when you toss them up into the air, they literally tumble over and over and over. <laughs> Genetics. Um, <laughs> you know, so pigeons are amazing. I mean, pigeons even played, um, early roles in, uh, things like research. Um, people may be aware of like the Skinner box, which is like, you know, rats pressing levers in a box to get a reward. The original animal in that box was a pigeon. Oh, believe I didn't it or not, know that. I didn't know. Yeah, that. pigeon pecking keys, uh, and then it was replaced with a rat. Um, so, yeah, I mean, pigeons were incredibly useful um, until after about World War II. Um, people stopped keeping pigeons in cities, um, and part of that was due to kind of the rise of the industrial chicken complex mm-hmm. um, and the rise of the supermarket it became so much easier to just go to the supermarket or the butcher and get your chicken um, than to, you know, put in the time and the money and the cleaning and stuff to keeping pigeons on your own. Um, And as they declined, cities started banning them um, from being raised within city limits. Um, And what do you do with a bunch of pigeons that you used to keep and you don't anymore? You let them go. And now we have pigeons, feral pigeons. And the pigeons, one of their things they do is they come home every night. So they come home to your house or to your city because that's where they've always lived. We have always had these animals and we used to value them. And they only became pests because we decided we didn't need them anymore. And that is so sad to me, right? Pigeons are like the out-of-date cell phone of the animal world. Oh, Oh, right. And you look at an old cell phone, and you're like, oh, God, that thing had the worst battery life. I'm so done. And you shove it in a drawer or you throw it out. And, you know, the difference is pigeons are birds. They're alive. And they're still here. And the thing, <laughs> and- of course, that made them so valuable to us has now made them very difficult to, quote unquote, get rid of. Right. Because they still breed prolifically. <laughs> 
they still come home all the time prolifically and they still come home all the time feed themselves very effectively in cities yeah and that was actually the pigeons really highlighted one of the themes that i tried to get at in the book is the way humans create niches that allow animals to thrive and this was a niche that we created on purpose we created a niche for the pigeon because we valued the pigeon and then we decided we didn't value them but we didn't get rid of the niche and so the pigeon is still here (laughs) and now we're mad and i just love how so many animals that we now call pests are kind of us reaping the victims reaping the rewards of our own success (laughs) right like we brought these pigeons here we brought pigs to different continents that have become feral hogs (laughs) We grew gardens that made white-tailed deer incredibly prolific in the United States. This is all us. And now we're mad and we're like, how dare these animals live here? How dare these animals be as successful as we are? Honestly, what were they thinking? (laughs) Bethany, it's been such... Uh, it's been really excellent talking to you about your book and it was so great to read it. Um, I do have one last question for you, which is in your reporting and writing of this book, what has changed about the way you view creatures that we call pests? That's sort of the first part. And then I think the second part is based on on what you have learned and what you have been thinking about over the course of writing this book. Is the word pest even useful to us anymore? Yeah. So to start with the first part of the question, um, one of the things that I really learned during the reporting of this book that I tried to highlight in this book is that the way that we in the West, in the global North, in the developed Christian-influenced world, view animals is not the way that everyone does. And it's not the way that we have to view animals. This is entirely cultural. It is malleable. We can be different. We just have to want to be different. And there are many cultures around the world. Um, I was very lucky to be able to learn from a lot of indigenous groups um, about how they view human-wildlife coexistence. And it really is coexistence. Um, And because of their different views, the way they deal with these animals is much more peaceful. Um, And I would say, I would say the difference is between offense and defense. Mm. When we label something a pest, we take the offense. We go out there, we got, we grab the BB gun, we grab the poison. We're going to kill it before it kills us. Not that it would ever kill us. Right. We create a battlefront. We create a battlefront. Instead, you can create a defense. And actually, a good example of this is my relationship with Kevin. (laughs) Um, So Kevin is still living in my yard. Um, This year, however, was the first summer that I actually got tomatoes and I got a ton of them. And it was because um, he did start eating my tomatoes and I erected a cage around my tomatoes, a big Like I built one out of like wood and um, some bird netting and stuff. And that lasted about a week. Uh, Then he got in. I stapled it down. He got in again. Uh, So then I purchased a professional level cage. (laughs) And I put it up and it took like several hours to put it up. And then I left and I went to my friend's house. And the next thing you know, I'm getting a text from my husband saying, hey, 
um, you need to look at this. And he sends me a photo and there's two squirrels trapped inside the cage. (laughs) 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 They broke in within an hour. Wow. They got trapped and they couldn't get out. So we had to like unzip the cage to let them out. And then they got back in. So then I went to like level three and I sewed the cage to the, to the, um, the cage netting to the base and I surrounded it with chicken wire and I lined it with bricks so they couldn't dig underneath it. Wow. And I had a full harvest of tomatoes. Oh, I did not take the offense. I took the defense. And I think that's, what's really changed and kind of my, the way I approach it and the way I interact, I do not think of trying to get rid of the pest. I think about if I want this to be mine, here is how I defend it. Right. And you do that not only with the, like the tools you have at your human disposal, but also by learning. Like I learned a lot about squirrels. I learned that they dig, (laughs) which you wouldn't think they necessarily do a lot of, but they really do. Um, They dig. I learned how they get through different kinds of wiring and how they get, get through different kinds of netting. Um, I learned what stops them from doing these things. (laughs) You know, I ended up learning a lot about the ecology of squirrels around me, and that enabled me to erect a correct defense. Um, So I think there's that. There's the difference between like offense and defense, which was very kind of important to my conclusions. Um, And I forgot the second part of the question. I'm sorry. Oh, yes. The word pest. Yep. Uh, I don't like it. I use it a lot. It's the title of the book. Uh, I think it does not serve us well because the word pest, much like the phrase human wildlife conflict, implies a fight. It implies something that has no value. It implies something that we should get rid of, something that does not belong. And if we want to foster human wildlife coexistence, if we want to live defensively instead of offensively, if we want to acknowledge that we have created an ecosystem that wild animals can live in, then I think the word pest doesn't serve us. I think that it hurts us um, because it says that some animals have no value. And in order to coexist, we need to see their positive sides. We need to see their value. And unless we get rid of the word pest, I don't think we can. Bethany, it's been wonderful to have you here, and it was really great to read your book. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you had me on. And if you want to learn more about our own Bethany Brookshire, her writing, her podcast work, or her shiny new book, we've got you covered as always in the show notes for this episode, which you can find in your podcast app or on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs> <laughs>